Welcome to the Beyond Barriers podcast. If you're an ambitious woman who wants to advance in leadership, then this podcast is for you. This podcast is co-hosted by Nikki Barua, digital innovator, serial entrepreneur, author, and speaker, and Monica Marquez, senior corporate leader, ex-Googler, and diversity expert. From inspiring stories to cutting-edge strategies, you'll learn how to develop the skill set, mindset, and tool set to get future-ready fast and accelerate your success. I'm Monica, host for today's episode. How did you decide what you wanted to be when you grow up? Some of us are still trying to decide. Things don't always go as planned, especially when it comes to our careers. Whether you're looking to get promoted, change jobs, or transition into a new role, being curious and taking risks is part of growing professionally. For this podcast, Robin Shepherd, Head of Corporate Engagement at Bridgewater Associates, tells us about her risk-taking experiences and making her voice heard. She also tells us about how to ask for the help you need to succeed. Robin grew up with an exposure to a great education, but believing in only a narrow possibility for her career. As she grew in her professional life, she understood that she needed to prepare for opportunities that might unexpectedly come her way. She feels it is as important to know what you don't want to do as it is to knowing what you want to do and being aware of what you're passionate about. Success involves building great professional relationships, and the best way to make those connections is being authentic, something Robin is known for. Her positive energy will lift you up and give you ideas on how to take a new path at work. Visit I Am Beyond Barriers, where you'll find show notes and links to all the resources in this episode, including the best way to get in touch with Robin. Welcome, Robin. Thank you so much for joining us on the Beyond Barriers podcast. We are thrilled to have you here. So without further ado, I know that many of our listeners are just wanting to get right into your story and learn a little bit about you and your journey and what's kind of led you into your current role right now. Well, thank you. First, thank you so much for having me and for being part of this important work, which I think you'll hear from my story how much I could have benefited from a a podcast (laughs) like this at many points in many different transitions. Um, So I, uh, I'm a, I'm from Pittsburgh originally. I was, Mm -hmm. um, my parents were very educated, but did not have a lot of money. School Mm -hmm. was very important. um, But the idea of possibilities um, was very narrow for me. Mm -hmm. And so the idea of, okay, so, If you're smart and you're good at math and science and you work really hard, are you going to be a doctor, a lawyer, a teacher, an engineer? Like, what are the possibilities? I I didn't even imagine I could have a career in finance, that portfolio manager was a thing. Mm -hmm. Um, So, um, so much about my story. And luckily, my my parents um, and especially my father helped to guide me on when you don't know what you're going to be, how do you give yourself the most options? Yes. So I um, I went to college to be an engineer, decided, no, I didn't want to be an engineer. But by the time I fell in love with economics and took an economics course, I had more math than a lot of other people in in other majors, which allowed me the possibilities once I found my passion to step into it. Mm. So um, I um, I began my career in finance, not so much because I was sure that I really wanted, you know, knew I'd end up where, where I am now or where I am going, but mostly because I found out that um, first-year investment banking analyst jobs were the highest-paying job. Mm. 
<laughs> and I said, oh, what's, oh, oh, what's that thing? People uh-huh. are like, well, it's really hard. I was like, well, I can do hard. Um, mm-hmm. And so I said, well, let's try that out. I ended up, I never ended up being an investment banking analyst, but that started me doing internships when I was in college mm-hmm. um, at, at various private equity firms. Um, and then um, skipping ahead a little bit, Bridgewater Associates recruited where I, I work today uh, mm-hmm. and I've been there. It'll be 18 years next month. Um, when they were recruiting me um, with a headhunter called me, I, I was thinking like, um, who could these firm be that I have no idea who they are? Because um, in 2004, Bridgewater was a very big and successful right, money management you know? firm, but not the largest, most successful hedge fund who made more money for investors than any other fund. There was nothing like that in 2004. So I just went on the interview just to be curious. Right. Um, and it ended up being just such a fascinating series of conversations and people that I thought, why not? Why not take a risk? Two years, we'll all go to business school to be fine. And, um, and I ended up staying there 18 years. And I've done a lot of different jobs. I was an analyst or a client facing person managing managing our client relationships, mm-hmm. or I was the manager of the analyst or the client-facing people. And then I was chief of staff to our CEO, David McCormick, for many years, who recently mm-hmm. left Bridgewater. Um, but I, um, um, before, you know, in the last couple of years, we really, car- I carved out a, a function of all the things that I built when I was chief of staff. Uh-huh. So things like communications and PR and yes. um, corporate social responsibility, our community relations, how it intersects with our diversity and inclusion strategy. And so a lot of the work that I had been owning and building um, while helping David to manage the company, I became responsible for a couple of years ago and we built that function out. And that's that's where I'm working today. But none of that was planned when I was 18 <laughs> years old. Um, and a lot had to do with trying to imagine um, when you don't know what you want to do, how do you do the hardest thing you can so that you're set up when opportunity comes knocking? Wow, that's fascinating. And I think one of the key words that I heard you say was the curiosity that you had. Like you took the the interview, you went forward with it just because you were curious. And I think some people miss that how important curiosity is and how it can open so many opportunities um, for individuals. You talked about that, you know, you had this limited frame of reference. You didn't know what you didn't know. Um, how would you, you know, how did you learn? Um, how would you suggest that someone get exposure or figure out what are some other options out there besides, because very much like you, I grew up in a small West Texas town and success was defined as become a lawyer, a doctor, an engineer. And it wasn't until I got to college and I saw all of these opportunities that I didn't even know where to go, right? Or, or get exposed to it. Um, what are your thoughts on that? It, it's such a great question. And it's so personal to me too, mm-hmm. um, because um, until I saw what the possibility was of what a whole field that combined my love of math and mm-hmm. people mm-hmm. and strategy and connectivity, did I even realize what kind of jobs exist in finance? And, and that's why um, at Bridgewater, one of the things that we are really focused on is how to get access, um, not even just get access, but give access and give awareness and give uh, opportunity and possibilities to people who hadn't c- considered careers in finance like me. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, and Barnard, our new program with Barnard, which I'm we announced last year, it's the new pathways powered by Bridgewater is where we are sponsoring a cohort of really high 
um, potential students who are chosen. They haven't committed to a career in finance, but they have mm-hmm. expressed interest in math, computer science, economics, mm-hmm. statistics. And in our program, they're going to get special research opportunities, mm-hmm. paid internships at Bridgewater, exposure to our industry, mentorship with the incredible women and um, all the all the professionals at Bridgewater that help to explore help to explore and expose people to what a career in this industry could look like. And Barnard is a fantastic school, New York City based, um, of course, all women's, uh, you know, an all women's college, but also mm-hmm. um, where so many of the students are first generation and first generation college. And so the mm-hmm. idea of building a program that helps to um on a small scale, and then eventually, hopefully on a larger scale, um, give more of that awareness that I had, that I and many, many of the women I know in the industry didn't really consider till later on. Um, wow. And I think that'll be a pretty powerful thing. That is fabulous. That is extremely powerful because, like you said, it's one gaining that awareness. But, you know, even the research, the, the statistics out there have shown that there may be 50% women in business school, but they're not really focusing on finance or any of those kind of like um, niche areas. They're thinking of other broader, more general kind of, um, you know, MBA kind of uh, areas of subjects, subject areas. So I think that's phenomenal what you're doing of giving them that exposure and almost kind of like debunking the myth or the assumptions of what they think the finance world would be all about. Um, that's that's brilliant. Uh, kudos to you all on doing that pro- that project. So I want to shift gears a little bit. So many people are driven by certainty where they're kind of like they mitigate risk and somebody might have said, I'm going to go somewhere more comfortable. How do you handle that when you said, okay, I'm curious, right. this sounds like an opportunity and you were like, this, two years doesn't work out, I do this. What drives that? What, how, do you, how do you step into those unknowns with such conviction or courage? Well, I don't know if I step into them with conviction, but I do step into them with courage. And mm-hmm. that comes with knowing that I'm going to figure it out. Okay. Um, and um, that, that sort of faith that whatever it's going to be, I'm going to be able to figure it out. Mm-hmm. And then it's also just like the focus being, um, what's the most interesting thing I could do? What's mm. the most fascinating? You know, if I, if I'm going to be, if I'm going to, you know, we get how many years on this planet? <laughs> I'm going to do it with the best people and the hardest people and the most interesting problems. And so constantly trying to sniff that out at the same time as knowing that I'm going to be able to do it when I get there. And mm-hmm. part of that again comes back from, actually being prepared. I don't think it's a, I don't think it's, um, well, let me give you an example when I actually, like actually wasn't prepared. So when I, mm-hmm. when I, when I first, um, start, I had worked in private equity for a few years after college mm-hmm. before I went to work at Bridgewater. And so mm-hmm. I knew how to build a leverage buyout model. I knew how to take a company's financial statements and make some assumptions and make an assessment and figure out what, you know, what you would do with an investment like that. Right. Bridgewater's a a global macro investor. And the, you know, I didn't know how to price a bond. I didn't know how to deal with currency conversions. And I said in my interview, I said, if you want me to do anything like that, do you know I don't know any of those things? (laughs) And they were like, yeah, 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 don't worry, we'll teach you. And I was like, really? Because other people want me to know something. And they were like, no, it's this idea that what we're hiring for, especially early in somebody's career, is Mm -hmm. potential. And um, hunger and curate all those sorts of things. Mm-hmm. And then they really did. And it was up to me the same way that I didn't used to not know how to build a leverage buyout model. I also didn't know how to price currencies. But 
I d- you can read a book on those things. What you can't read a book on is um, how to be willing to take the risks in the first mm-hmm. place. And yeah. I think that I think that comes from um, a, you know a faith in yourself that you can figure it out. What's the worst that can happen? If you don't, you you learn something. It's okay. And um and being trying to shed that um that fear of um having to be perfect because it's mm. not it's a it's a series of mistakes and learning that we make not a series of perfect 100% every time i think that's so powerful that you said that because you know we hear about you know individuals who suffer from this idea of perfectionism and you know all it really does a lot of the times is cause them to procrastinate or to miss out on opportunities because they, like you said, they want to be able to, you know, do something or, or you know, bake it 100% before they, they step into the opportunity. Um, and you talked about taking risks and how success really is a series of failures and things that you learn and then you end up being successful. But when it comes to like hard decisions and you have to kind of make a decision, do you have a certain kind of process or technique or things that you kind of like a pros and cons list? What do you do to make these important decisions? Two things. Mm -hmm. First is um, when there's fear involved, I definitely focus on what's the worst possible thing that could happen. Mm. And I map out like doomsday scenario, worst possible things that could happen. And then you realize that that's going to be fine. Like you either solve, you either solve for that in your system or you realize it's actually not that bad. Okay. So mm-hmm. I lose all my, I, I, you know, I lose my savings on this startup idea. Well, mm-hmm. I'll make more money later. You know, anyway, those are the kind of things that, right. um, but that's not the only, like preparing for the worst isn't the only thing. It's also about imagining the opportunity mm. and um, being able to break decisions down into their various component parts that you would, if you were honestly modeling a deal or modeling a, uh, a trade or a, um, an idea is so, you know, I was just sitting with a a group of women at Bridgewater talking about different opportunities and different jobs for one of the women in our group. And there was a, um, you know, a factors of how much do you love the subject matter? How much do you love the, um, people? How much will this open doors for you? How much will this on the negative side close doors for you? Anyway, we could make, we can make a hundred factors Right. And then actually just break down your instincts to them and stare at that. It kind of gives you the information you need if you ever feel lost. Mm. And I said there were two things. So doomsday, that's sort of like really trying to map it out. And then third is you trust your gut. You trust your instincts mm-hmm. and yes. um, they've got you this far. And if it's if your gut's pulling you in a direction, you can try and figure out what that is. Is it because is it because um, I know that that opportunity is going to be the next big thing or is it because that feels safer whatever whatever it is try to decode your instincts but trust them Mm. that's so important and i think one of the things that you said was having more faith over fear right and a lot of the times fear i love to use the acronym of like false evidence appearing real Mm -hmm. and like you said you breaking it down into kind of the worst case doomsday and you're like okay if this were to happen then how would i mitigate the consequences or how would I move forward regardless? And then you realize you've already created the plan for the worst case. And so it's just like, well, then I know what to do if I fail. So just move forward. I love that. Um, and it does give you that faith over fear. 
Now, you've had an interesting kind of varied career where, you know, like you said, you started off, you know, as an analyst, but then you you went into jobs like chief of staff. And now the, you know, I love what you said in terms of you almost creating like all of these things that you've owned. Now you do a different role, but you kind of, you know, forged that path for yourself and switching lanes. How did you do that? And how did you, you know, how did you drive that for yourself? Um, first I would say if any, um, if, I would advise anybody who has the opportunity to go from early, especially early in their career, sort of operating on the front lines or running something that's important, but small and narrow. If -hmm. you can get yourself into the room at the highest levels of the company Mm -hmm. and be able to imagine those scenarios, um, it's almost like a flight simulator. It's that if, you know, watching somebody run a company or watching somebody run a country or why, whatever, whatever um, it is that, that would allow you to have a seat at the table or be in the room where it happens. When you get back there 10 years later as the principal, you're already going to know what happens in those rooms. And so I, I, um, there was a moment where I hesitated when I took initially took the job, um, Mm -hmm. uh, the chief of staff type job. Because I was like, I, I don't, next to important doesn't sound like important, you know. And, and <laughs> but but it was actually one of the best things I could have ever done because of the things that I've seen and situations I've navigated through and helped to navigate through. Um, I've seen I've seen it all and I've impacted it all um, without having to be the person whose hands were on the wheel. Mm-hmm. Um, so I rec- I recommend that. And so part of what it took to, to your question about how literally do you navigate it is recognizing who to tell what you want. Hmm. And there are people who actually decide these things. And yeah. it seems like it's HR. It's not HR. Like there are, <laughs> there are things, there are people who get to say, yes, I'm going to put you as the head of Asia or yes, mm-hmm. the person who's going to lead our trading desk nest is this. And you have to find out who that person is and then tell them that you want it to start. Mm. Um, there are a lot of things that will happen where if you work at a really great organization where there's incredible talent management, the hand of God will come down and pick you up and place you where you're supposed to be. God, God bless you if that's where you work, because it's not always the case. And it will take um, you. Everybody will be better off if you're able to figure out um, the path to the people who actually make the decisions and getting to ask for what you want. That's so important that you said in terms of Really, like you said, decisions are made by individuals that not HR and it's always behind closed doors and you really need to understand who those key stakeholders, like who's there. How did you like, how would someone find that out? Because I hear, you know, we've shared that before. It's just like, know who the key stakeholders are, know who the people who make decisions are and make sure that they know who you are, right? It's not mm-hmm. like who you know, it's who knows you, right? And, and, mm-hmm. and being able to talk and share your story. Um, what, what advice would you give for someone who's saying, well, I want to understand who those decision makers are, but I don't know where to start? No, that's, that's a really important. And I've also been lucky to work for as long as I have at a company where there's a lot more transparency mm-hmm. about who that is and how it happens than others. But even still, um, it's about... The, the biggest lesson I would say is l- getting to know people and mm-hmm. asking them questions and not asking them questions like who gets to decide the tra- next the, the head of the trading floor. But I mean, <laughs> the um, what are you working on? Who, 
What are you worried about? What are your goals? What will success be like for you this year? And not and deeply, truly wanting to know and be curious about it because you put yourselves in other people's shoes Mm -hmm. is the path to knowing and seeing those things. Um, I don't, in my experience, it's not that people are hiding it. It's not that people are deliberately buckling closed doors trying to cloak their power. It's that most people are nervous, insecure, unsure of themselves, um, worried about what they're, how everybody sees them. And so Mm -hmm. if we all give each other a little bit of grace that everybody above us and below us is going through those same things, a lot of times just asking the questions about, people's worries and concerns starts to help you understand what they're thinking about. Mm. And uh, sometimes that'll be, I want that'll point you right in the direction of the person who's making all the decisions, or (laughs) you'll figure out that they're the person making the decisions and they don't know what to do. Mm. And then being the person who can come in with ownership and answers, not because you know everything or you're arrogant, but because you're willing to take chances and make decisions. um, Mm. You can take that burden off people's plate in many ways. That's so important. Like you said, be, not being afraid to come in with answers or, you know, make decisions. And what I take from that is like having a perspective and, and being confident and sharing your perspective and adding value to the conversation. Um, and the, what comes to mind after that is like really having that perspective and, and sharing or even asking really smart questions in those meetings. How have you made sure that your voice is heard um, in those situations where like you have gotten into the room, but making sure that, um, you know, that you do have a perspective and people hear it? Um, I try really hard uh, to boil down the thing that I'm saying to as few words as possible. And you mm. can hear in this conversation, I could go on forever about these things. <laughs> and so if I do that, um, I lose, I lose my audience. So I mm-hmm. really try to think about what is at the core of what they need to, what, of what I need to convey and mm-hmm. how to, how to isolate that to as few words as possible. And, mm-hmm. um, using metaphors and examples that help to illustrate the thing that I'm saying. So if we were mm-hmm. talking about, um, if we were talking about, how to bring diversity and inclusion into a conversation about mm-hmm. personnel that we hadn't yet before you can understand, you know, as we were talking before this call, that yeah. can be very fraught and right. that can be very concerning and threatening to people, even the people with the best of intentions. Right. And so it's how do I understand and balance the um, concerns on the other side of the table with the clarity of my idea and making sure those two things match in a way that, mm-hmm. that makes sense. Um, and sometimes it'll mean I do it in writing. Sometimes I'll mean I'll be do it in writing. And even if I never send that email, the fact that I wrote that email ahead of time before the conversation where it's going to be tough, my thinking is so much more crisp. Mm. Um, and then, um, if I'm able to, a lot of, a lot of the things I talk about is the moments where you need the courage and you need the confidence to mm-hmm. stand behind your courage, it comes from actually being prepared, either because you've mm-hmm. done the work ahead of time or because you've done the thinking to be sure you're right. And there's a lot of people in this world, and I'm not one of them, who maybe gets to drift along by giving their whip, you know, drift along <laughs> and um, share the, their whiffs and whims. Um, um, and so, I, you know, it takes putting in the work ahead to be able to do that. That's so important. And I think one of the key words that you said was, think time. 
that you've actually put the thought into it in order to be prepared, whether it's like you said, you've written it out, you've typed up the email, you know, gotten your thoughts. But think time is something that I think not very many people actually are intentional and deliberate about doing. Um, so can you share a little bit, like maybe some habits or hacks that you do when you say, you know, think time, what does that look like? I don't do it nearly enough and I want to do more of it. So I'm going to tell you what I'm aspiring to do Yes, is how to, to actually protect the moments on my calendar so that it's Mm. big, big blocks. It's not little blocks. It's not lots of 30 minute blocks. It's lots of big blocks such that you start procrastinating and you get your to-do list done because you procrastinate if you're really putting off doing something Uh and to be able to really block off a couple hours a week. And then even more than that, in a, at least once a quarter. Mm-hmm. And then when you have that time once a quarter, you're actually thinking about the things that maybe you should have, you, you can't put it off anymore. Mm-hmm. Do I love what I'm doing? Am I passionate about my work? Is, the, is there purpose behind everything that I'm doing? What are the biggest problems ahead of me and my responsibilities? And what am I doing about them? What am I most worried about? What, am I mo- what could I be missing? Anyway, ask, make your 10 questions. Yes. We all will have overlaps in what our 10 questions are, but every quarter you owe it to yourself to do. Mm-hmm. Um, you owe it to yourself to ask yourself those questions. Cause if you ask them, if you ask yourself them every 15 minutes, you'd be wasting your and everybody else's time. <laughs> right. But if you don't ask yourself them, I think at least once every three months, you're doing yourself and your teams a disservice. That is fantastic. And you know, it's so funny. It's it's almost kind of like you've attended some of our accelerator sessions around clarity, right? Of what are you passionate about? What do you enjoy doing? Are you do you really love the subject matter that you're working on? Um, and really asking yourself those questions so that you attract more opportunities that lend themselves to that. Um, what would you tell somebody? Or how would you help them navigate if they answer those questions and they realize that maybe the role that they're in? They don't really, it's not really a match for what they're passionate about or what they love doing. Well, knowing what you don't, so knowing what you want to stop doing is Mm -hmm. as, is. I don't know if it's as powerful, but it's very, very important than knowing where you are because every choice we make, everything we say yes to, we're, we're also saying no to something else. Every choice Mm, opens possibilities and it closes possibilities. The example I always give is like, if you don't take the bio classes in college, you will not be a doctor. And there were people I knew who did those postdoctorate <laughs> things after college. But if I decided to be a doctor right now, I, I, it's impossible with my lifespan. Like, right. And, and so I had to be okay with saying, I'm not going to be a doctor. And so knowing that allows you to just close that possibility in your mind mm-hmm. and give your mental energy to where you do want to go. Mm-hmm. And then you start with, how do I pivot? And it, there's, there's, running away from something is a lot less powerful than running towards something. Mm. And so then when you feel that way, you don't have to do anything urgently. You just have to now recognize and move to a whole nother mindset, which is how am I going to figure out where to go? And Mm. then it's not always going to be a next immediate step. It's going to be a direction like North, South, East, or West, not like, um, should I take the job in accounting? Mm -hmm. And um, rec- you know, re- finding that North Star, that magnetic pull to that area will be a lot more enlightening and having the power to just close off. All right. And then, and you also want to ask yourself the questions. It's not just, I don't like what I'm doing right now, but it, it's the question is, do I not want to work in finance anymore? Well, that's a very different thing than I don't want to work on this team, on this project in this right. region. 
Mm-hmm. And so um, there's a lot of power and purpose in all of our industries. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you just want to ask yourself return on investment. Like how big is it to switch? So the, mm-hmm. the things I always ask people when they're at junctures, especially about finding your passion mm-hmm. is when you're looking backward is um, it's sort of three questions in the last year. What did you do? That was the most fun. You mm-hmm. lost yourself in your work. You forgot to eat lunch. You woke up in the middle of the night, not because in a panic, like you forgot something, but inspired with an idea in the zone. Mm-hmm. The second is, what are you most proud of? Sometimes it's the same as the first, and sometimes it's not. In fact, most often it's not. Mm-hmm. And the third is, what did you not get to work on that you wanted to work on? Either somebody else got the project or it caught your eye from across the company newsletter. And those answers aren't as important as like, what is it about that work? Right. So was it the problem solving? Was it the organizing people? Was it the subject matter? Like there are people who will like have come in my office and said, Robin, I'm not passionate about this. I'm passionate about the developing economies of sub-Saharan Africa. And I'm like, I don't have that here, but I can make three calls and we can get you the best job ever in that field. Yes. A lot of times it's not that people's passions aren't that tied to a subject matter. They're tied to what they do every day. Mm-hmm. And if we can help people figure out what is it I want to do? What is the problems I want to work on? I think you can start to unlock purpose and meaning in a way that doesn't have to be so existential. Like it can just be, it can be, it can be much more about gravity and magnetic pull. Right. That is so fantastic that you've said that. And I think one of the key things that you, you gave an example of is, you know, you as a, you know, as a, as a phenomenal leader asking individuals those things, but when they can communicate it to you, then you become an advocate, right? Like you, that example that you said, someone coming telling you, I'm really interested in like sub, sub African something. You're like, well, I don't have that here, but I can make three calls and help you, you know, do that. But it was because this individual actually said it out loud and voiced it out loud and knew what it is that what they wanted. So that takes me to the power of community of, you know, how, you know, how has community or how have sponsors and advocates helped you in your career? It's kind of everything. So mm-hmm. um, one of the most important communities in my, um, in my professional life is the Women's Influence Network at Bridgewater. Mm, yes. And so when it's, you know, 400 people strong and it's open to men and women, um, you know, mm-hmm. all of our affinity networks are open to everyone across the company. It's a very inclusive mm-hmm. um, policy in that way. Um, but before there ever was an official women's affinity network, um, it was me in 2004 as the only woman investment associate at the firm. Mm. And now every other place I had worked, I was the only woman analyst or investment professional or so, or, you know, we're one of the only in that, in that way. But what Bridgewater had that was different was Giselle Wagner, who was our chief operating officer at mm. the time. She built Bridgewater with Ray Dalio for decades. Right. And when I started, she, said she immediately took me under her wing, took me out to lunch, made sure she, I knew where to go, who to see, what to do um, in a way that um, I'll never forget. And I knew from that moment on, it was going to be part of my leadership also. Right. And so every, after that, I wasn't the, I wasn't the, I wasn't the first woman investment associate. I was the only at the time. And there were many mm-hmm. after me. Mm-hmm. And as they would hire, um, women investment associates or managers or technologists, 
they'd either be assigned to me as a mentor in our official program mm-hmm. or one of my mentees. And we've created this community, not because anybody told us to, that was basically a mentor-mentee family of sorts where, you know, your grand mentees and your great-grand mentees, and if somebody left the the firm, mm-hmm. um, you'd adopt down the chain such that people really knew and valued and were part of a community. Now, listen, mm-hmm. we, we went out, this was social. We went out to dinner. We went out to lunch. We It started as people who enjoyed each other's company and cared right. about each other's dreams. And eventually, as we became, grew in responsibility, you'd look around the table and be like, wow, we're, we're really doing something here. And <laughs> yes. I could fill every job. I could understand what's going on around the company. I could connect people beyond because if you can take these kind of communities to create alternative sources of power and influence mm-hmm. instead of just, um, you know, like those awkward women's dinners we've all been to where there's like Chardonnay <laughs> or tea or something. And you're like, yeah. what's what what are we doing here? But uh-huh. if, if it actually comes from meaning where there's power and influence that comes from it. Mm-hmm. And I didn't set out to do it that way. It just listen, it, no matter where I'd be, I'd be. When I was um, on my maternity leaves, I also created these communities of the new moms who had babies within weeks of my kid, too. I I just naturally do it that way. Mm -hmm. Um, But what I look at, what we grew, and then when we formed um, the Women's Influence Network in 2017, the the predecessor of this was was this community we already had. Mm -hmm. Um, You start to realize that, like, the the power that comes from um deliberately deciding to make community a priority yes. and making these connections um something that is intentional and not just happenstance and um so my own mentors have done that for me and there's countless of people who've looked out for me but more so the mentees of mine mm-hmm. in this program have taught me more than I could have ever taught them mm-hmm. because these are the people who are leading um and growing in an incredible, just incredible professionals in their own right. And the idea that just because I was the oldest is the reason that I had all the answers is hardly, hardly true. Um, so I recommend to anybody who is um, sitting around at their organization, not sure what to make of it, that like <laughs> it fill, filling a void like that can be very, very powerful and rewarding. And I think that's phenomenal in terms of, like you said, identifying that community and pulling, you know, and pulling them together. Because I think what we see a lot of the times and the research shows it where women don't leverage their networks as readily or as fully as our male peers do. Um, Can you talk a little bit about how sometimes, you know, you know, based on research, based on some of the case studies, based on the anecdotal, you know, hearsay that I hear from these women of them feeling like it's a burden to ask, um, you know, their network or their peers for help in getting a job done where they feel like sometimes they have to do it themselves. Um, and I think that happens a lot with women who are also a lot of times find themselves as the only, um, but it, it, proves that, you know, you started kind of this community and leveraging relationships and knowing how to do that, um, of really kind of like debunking that myth of that you have to do it all yourself and that it's a burden to ask others for for help. Um, no, I think that's a really, really good point. Um, the m- Everybody actually really wants to help and most people don't know what to do. So, mm-hmm. If you're the person who's willing to decide what to do and tell other people what to do, 
In my experience, most people feel relief. Yes, there's this bossy, you know, (laughs) maybe I was called bossy too much when I was growing up, but it's this idea of like, I don't know. I now, after being on this earth this long, I know most people don't know what to do and are hungry for somebody to tell them what to do. The other thing, though, is most people also, especially when you need help from more senior people, Mm-hmm. They also are really excited to help and give advice. They want to mm-hmm. feel like they give back. They don't know how to do it or they would have already done it. Right. And so to be able to say, I need you to introduce me to the head of gives them relief because they can be like, I can do that. If you go to them being like, I don't know what to do with myself. I don't know anything about my career. I don't know. It's like now you're asking them to be your therapist and your executive coach. <laughs> yes. <clears throat> but if you already, if you're able to do the work and think about it, they would love to tell you about their careers. They would love to tell you about their mentors and their hard times and their, their biggest decisions. And so, but if you can leave with a an ask, it's almost a relief for people because they're dying to help you and they don't know what to, they don't know exactly how to do it. And then I also think um, there's so many people who walk around with like a, we should, we should, we should have a women's network, plan an event, <laughs> uh-huh. we should, you know, we should have an alumni network. That was another thing. Bridgewater has an incredible, vibrant alumni network that is among the most Mm-hmm. Probably more, you uni- I, I would bet pound for pound more unicorn startups came out of Bridgewater alumni than, um, you know, pretty <laughs> much any other, any yes. other, any other company. And, um, um, but people for years would be like, we should, we should do something about that. Well, you know what? All you have to do is be the one to grab the bull by the horns and do it instead of talk about what should happen. And so there's mm-hmm. a lot of like, if you're in an organization and you hear a lot of that around you, um, being the one who could, there's so much power in being the one who just picks up the pieces and makes it happen instead of just ask mm-hmm. for permission or ask for advice or ask for whatever that is, just start planning it and let somebody stop you. You know, wild horses are, you know, <laughs> wild horses are more valuable than um, lazy, other lazy. Exactly. Animals. I don't know. No, that's so true. I mean, I think like you said of the shoulda, woulda, coulda, and instead just being the one who like, you know, just a bias towards action and just do it or, or calling out and holding that person accountable saying, yeah, we should, why don't you start one kind of thing? Right. right. Um, you want a so- dinner? How about that? We could just have a dinner tomorrow. <laughs> yeah. My absolutely. place, cocktails. It's like, <laughs> no, I love that. That's fa- That's fabulous. What if you could pinpoint the invisible ceilings limiting your success? Imagine having clarity on your strengths and barriers so you can take action and gain unstoppable momentum to advance as a future-ready leader. Well, that's exactly what the Beyond Barriers quiz will help you discover. You'll get your personalized score based on the 25 essential elements proven to accelerate success in the digital age, so you can understand what's holding you back and where to focus your efforts. The Beyond Barriers quiz is completely free and takes just a few minutes. Go to imbeyondbarriers.com slash quiz and take the quiz today. So I want to talk a little bit about, um, you know, you talked about mentoring and mentees um, and knowing the ask, right? And I think that's the, the valuable thing of thinking about what it is you could ask this individual to help you with, because there is that human need of contribution. And as soon as you give them an ask that they're like, oh, I can easily do that, they, they, they would step in and do it in a heartbeat. With that, though, also, 
what I hear women talk about, and you may be familiar with the research that Sylvia Ann Hewlett did a few years ago, a couple of years ago, where she felt, you know, where she, it came out that women are getting over mentored and under sponsored. Mm-hmm. And the big question of how do you get a sponsor? Um, you know, you can't just walk up to somebody and say, sponsor me, because there's a little bit of, you know, capital that you have to build in terms of earned capital, in terms of your work and whatnot. What would you suggest for people when they're looking for that advocate or someone who can actually open a door for them for an opportunity opposed to just getting the mentoring? That's right. Because there's a lot of advice. Yes. And what I want is the person who's going to speak my name when I'm not in the room. And yes. um, that's what we all want and need. Um, so a couple things. I think, you know, going back to the earlier part of our conversation where it's about like figuring out who makes decisions. Yes. And, like we're always watching and learning about what our leaders do mm-hmm. and being able to pay attention to say who does take care of their people. The leaders who we all know it. I mean, if you spend enough time in any organization, you know who the people are who are loyal to their leader. And it's usually yes. because they're ruling out of um, fairness and well, not ruling, but you know, they're, mm-hmm. they're, they're leading with fairness and merit and, mm-hmm. um, opportunity and humility and being able to pay attention to who those people are and sorting them from the attention seekers, from Mm -hmm. the um, credit stealers and from the, those who in any way lead through fear. And if you're able to sort that in your mind, then you kind of know where your target is and your target's the first in case, in case that wasn't clear. (laughs) And, um, And then it's about doing what you can to not just know those people, but make their lives easier. Mm. So the, when you like how you said earlier, you have to know you want to know those people and you want them to know you is you um, it's like if a tree falls in the forest, like do you, is anybody going to notice? And it's like, if you're going to do some, if you're going to find a way to get staff to their projects, figure out what there is important to them in ways that yeah. you can contribute to it from a completely volunteer aspect on the side. Those are ways that actually help the company, help you and help the person that you're trying to become your advocate. Mm. Um, and it doesn't have to be some sort of political thing. It's about like, who are the best people I want to surround myself with and how can I make their lives easier? And a lot of times that's going to then turn into this symbiotic relationship mm. of, um, of what it is. And then avoiding the other people at all costs. Like they will right. not make good sponsors. They, right. they are the people who, and I've been in the room, I've been in the room for y- over a decade. And um, that for, that's that kind of group, those people who are the credit stealers, they steal it in the rooms where mm-hmm. you're in and they steal it in the rooms where you're out. So you might as well do everything you can to get away from them. Right. I think that's, you know, really insightful what you said in terms of making sure that you are being intentional on identifying those people and then figuring out how you put yourself in, in that path, right? And how you're, and I think the key word you're saying is intentional, right? You've got to be intentional. You've got to think and be strategic. And there's nothing wrong with that. Because sometimes when we, you know, in some of the women that I coach and you're telling them to be intentional, be strategic with the relationships, they feel like it's a little kind of awkward or selfish or kind of like, you know, they just don't feel good doing that. Um But that's not, you know, like you said, it's the symbiotic relationship that, you know, you're helping them as well. um, But you're putting yourself in that path to have the opportunity to come to you. 
And I think right. that's- and the And the way that I cross it for myself, because I feel the same way. Mm-hmm. If I had to be like, you know, figure out who, if, if, if I, 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 again, I'm, I'm grateful. I work in a company that's very transparent. So everybody, uh-huh. I, everybody who I think poorly about, I, I say to them that I think poorly of them too. <laughs> so that helps. So I'm not holding that in, but the, um, the, um, if I start with the first thing, who do I want to be around and who mm-hmm. do I admire? Then there's nothing fake about the work, about trying to. Right. Be, advance their priorities because then it's about honesty and authenticity and integrity and about what's best for the company instead of something like if i do a favor for this jerk the jerk might you know return (laughs) it to me nicely take that you don't even have to worry about that Uh take that out of your mind because that's not what i'm talking about and the you know and if, if instead a person is thinking about um who do i admire like if i could if I could do a favor for Madeline Albright, I'd love to do a favor for Madeline Albright. Right. right? Uh-huh. And, um, you know, and you think about the people who um, think about, if I think about it that way, then it's not, it's not political and fake. Mm, that's, that's important. And I appreciate that because I think that will, you know, gives, uh, you know, just a sense of relief to some people who want to do those things, but realize that, you know, if there is a level, like you said, of admiration of you want to be around them and then being transparent about it, um, you know, you're, you're, you're lift, you're kind of lifting both everyone up, right? You're, you're sharing that it's that proximity to that person, but then being helpful. And it's that idea of reciprocity, right? Of helping one another, uh, level up together. I think that's really important. I could talk to you all day. I think this is, this has been a, 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 such an insightful conversation. Uh, but I know we have to close it out. So I want to go to our lightning round questions that, um, I love asking because I think this also kind of rounds out and lets everybody know, you know, how amazingly deep everybody can be. So, um, lightning round questions. What book has greatly influenced you? The Daily Stoic by Ryan Holiday. I mm. give it to everybody I can give it to. Um, it, it is a daily meditation from one of the Stoic philosophers um, that helps you. It certainly was very helpful in the pandemic of mm. this idea of we cannot control the things that happen to us, but we can control mm. how we respond. And um, each of these things, I think, is an incredibly powerful a powerful reminder. So I recommend that to anybody who will listen. Wow. I definitely am putting that on my reading list next. <laughs> um, what is your favorite inspiring quote or saying? This, this is one of the, my stoic quotes um, mm-hmm. from, you know, from the stoic philosophers. So um, Epictetus said, how long are you going to wait before you demand the best for yourself? Mm-hmm. And that, that idea that we don't have, we don't, t- I don't take any, you don't, don't take the time for granted. Don't take the time for granted with your loved ones, with your work, with anything. And so um, how to maximize every day and take control of what we can control. Wow. What is one word or moniker you would use to describe yourself? Tough. Tough. I love it. <laughs> I love it. What is one change habit, behavior, action that you implemented that actually made your life better? It's, it's very tactical, but it's so important is um, there when my kids leave the house and when my kids get home from school, I do everything I can to not be working. 
So mm-hmm. if I'm in the office and now we're going back to the office, this is this is harder to do. But in a world where I could stay in this office all day and work mm-hmm. from home, having those half hour moments of transition have been mm-hmm. so important to my family um, in this time that has been so hard for everybody around the world. Right. Um, so, you know, half hour makes all the difference. Fantastic. Now, this is one of my favorites. So imagine there's a big stage, thousands of people out in the audience waiting for you to come on there. What song would be playing as you walked out on stage? <laughs> Black and Yellow by Wiz Khalifa. Um, <laughs> Not, I'm from Pittsburgh, so I, I, it's a great song whether you're from Pittsburgh or not. Yes. That's it. That's it for me. I love it. I can see you strutting out already. <laughs> your, your tough self walking out to black and yellow. That's amazing. Well, Robin, thank you so much for giving us this time and for your just the insights that you shared. I think um, is definitely one of the episodes that a lot of women will click rewind and say, let me listen to this and then be able to walk with their head held a little higher and a little more confident. Uh, Thank you again for your time. And uh, we look forward to continued partnerships with Beyond Barriers. Yeah, thank you so much for having me and for this really important work. It's, It's really great to be part of it. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Beyond Barriers podcast. There are thousands of podcasts out there. And we are so grateful that you've chosen to listen to ours. If you enjoyed the show, please leave us a rating and tell a friend about it and subscribe to get new episodes every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. Visit IamBeyondBarriers.com where you'll find show notes, links, and the best way to connect with our guests. See you next episode.